This is In Conversation from Network Reorient in association with Reorient Journal and the Critical Muslim Studies Project. We aim to explore the post-Western, reconnect the Islamosphere. In this episode, in a live conversation recorded as part of the launch of this year's third Critical Muslim Studies Workshop, Salman Said and Abdul Karim Bakil explore the genealogies of Critical Muslim Studies. Welcome everyone. Um, the starting point for this uh, discussion, uh, conversation that will take place, which is uh, in a way an attempt to think about the genealogies of critical Muslim studies, is to think about the fact that today, and that is one of the uh, central kind of um, contextual um, markers of the present moment and, and of the criticality that informs critical Muslim studies, we may say that what characterizes it is the hyper-visibilization of Muslims. There is a sort of white noise of speech about um, Muslims and, and, and Islam. And yet it is uh, not so long ago that those of us uh, of an older generation will recall a time when in the intellectual world, in the academic world within which we worked, there was quite literally an absence uh, of, of Muslims. There was an absence of Muslims in the sense of, for example, if I think about my own trajectory and my own um, uh, university career, there was an absence of, of um, any actual content about Muslims in, in the curriculum. There was an absence of, of, of Islam or Muslims from, from reading lists, of course, um, but also, and in particular, among um, institutionally, among um, the kinds of lecturers, professors, members of staff, institutional points of links that I, that I would come across. And yet, if I think about those same years, and if I think, for example, of the space that was the Islamic society or the khutbah on Fridays and the Juma and so on, which was uh, extremely focused on the, um, the anti-Soviet jihad that was going on in Afghanistan, the handing out of leaflets about the Rushdie affair outside the prayer room, the, the tremendous infighting between Hizbut Tahrir and other groups and so on. There was this complete disconnect between, on the one hand, the kind of life that was out there that connected with the issues of Islam and Muslims, and the kind of intellectual and, and, and the university culture and life that was supposed to prepare me to, to that world. And um, I still remember the sort of the, the thrill that it was to pick up, for example, a book of uh, sociology on, um, for example, the the sociology of social movements and so on, and then to find a chapter on Islamic social movements. It was like, it, it was something that was uh, unexpected. It was something that was thrilling to, to come across. And in that sense, when I think, for example, of the fact that in my own university, it was I who, as a lecturer, already introduced the first lecture on Muslims in, for example, the, the, the History of Europe courses, that it was I that introduced the first MA on Muslims, it was called the making of uh, Muslims in Europe in, in the history department and so on, which is in the 210s, in the 210s. So if you think about this, part of the question that I'm interested in is in a sense, where does uh, fundamental fear, uh, the book that uh, Salman Said uh, published in, in, 19, in 1997, where does it come from? In other words, what, what are the sort of conditions of possibility when we look back at a, a trajectory of what will come to be critical Muslim studies, fundamental fear is at, is at a, a certain point of origin in those lineages that I trace. So I'm interested in, in knowing where it comes from. But first I want to ask two more pointed questions, Salman. I'm thinking in particular about the way that one of the first 
texts of yours probably that I came across uh, for reasons that you know biographically we have a certain connection with that discipline is Sign of the Times, uh, Kafirs and Infidels Fighting the Ninth Crusade that came out in um, Vanessa Laclau's collection on the making of uh, political identity in 94, which at the time still lists you as one of the two PhD student contributors to, to, to that volume. And another one which I want to think about is um, the Beyond West Westphalia, Nations and Diasporas, a case of the Muslim Ummah, that comes out in Bernard Hesse's uh, volume of, of 2000 that reaches a much wider readership in terms of race, ethnicity and, and multiculturalism. And my question is this, and perhaps I'm framing it in a way that um, talks about my interpretation of it. Each of these two collections, Laclau's and Hesse's, is a, an implicit intervention in a context of what they each perceive as historical shifts. So Laclau is thinking about the way that the post-Cold War um, brings to an end sort of the global ideologies of, of, of post-45. And um, Barno is thinking in terms of the sort of the unsettling of multiculturalism in the Britain uh, of the 80s and 90s and towards a, a new moment. So in terms of um, before we come to fundamental fear, which I think constitutes a different order of intervention, each of these two chapters of yours function in, in, in discussions that are taking place about fundamental shifts in the intellectual mapping of where, where we are at. So my question, which I'd like you to, it's been a long introduction to my question, a question that I'd like you to, to, to try to, to, to start with are the following. Who did you see yourself speaking to in those chapters, each one of those two? And what do you think it was important to say to each of those two contexts? Well, thank you very much. And thank you everyone um, for participating into this uh, workshop. And I'm hoping to um, follow up with what Cream is saying that, you know, hoping over the next few um, sessions, we'll be able to um, both get to know each other, but also get to know um, about critical Muslim studies as a project, as a way of thinking about things. So I think the, uh, the way you framed it um, of the cream is actually really, really interesting because there've been two sides to the sort of Muslim question and the way it presents itself. On one hand, there were studies of um, Muslims in, in the sort of ethnographic register uh, around questions of minorities, not Muslims, but basically ethnically marked minorities who may or may not be Muslims. Yeah, and the Muslimness was just incidental. It wasn't. It wasn't significant on that. Um, there was also, of course, uh, a number of issues around of, um, more kind of international aspects. But again, Muslimness wasn't really at play in here. So you did have, for example, in in you know the, you you mentioned the the, the uh, Afghanistan, um, the Iraq Iran war. There was a certain presence um, in the public domain around what was probably called kind of in, in an odd way sort of Islamic fundamentalism and there were markers of that that used to float around. Now these two articles, I mean what these two chapters in a way what unites them is that of course you know is that in one way they were wedded to <laughs> Yes, that's the multi, uh, sort of multiculturalism and then um, the uh, making of political identities, I think. What unites them is a certain dissatisfaction with a particular orthodoxy at the time. I think it's very, very hard to imagine right now that 
at that time, the Soviet Union existed. It is not just the fact that a Soviet Union existed, but with that, a particular way of life existed, uh, which was the kind of a left, which wasn't just, uh, you know, um, based on political um, and ideological affiliations. So of course, there's a large part of it. It really was a way of life in a sense that there were the ways that circulated. It had, um, you know, organizations, cultural organizations, certain movements, particular ways of being, particular kind of circuits, etc. All of that existed. And in both of those, making of political identities and unsettling multiculturalism appear at a moment when those um, things are beginning to sort of run out of steam. And, and that running out of steam is actually the consequence of that. So the class project had already been trying to um, you know, announce himself in 1985 uh, with Chantal Mouffe as post-Marxist. And the idea of post-Marxism uh, became quite significant. What could post-Marxism actually mean at that point there? And when you look at the kind of collection that Varner puts, puts together in Uncertain Multiculturalism, it really is also breaking away from that kind of class reductionist view, which was very, very prevalent, and started thinking beyond the verities of particular types of identifications and identities, which were considered to be uh, no longer, they were, no, they were considered to be natural and not historical in themselves, in a way that people just dealt with them. Um, and they dealt with them as the ordinary kind of language and analysis of political realities using categories which were completely settled and uncontested. They were not, there was no point in contesting them. And this meant that you had either class on one hand, or you had sort of ethnicities or culture ethnicities. And the category of Muslim really did not appear in either of those two very easily. So part of that um, condition was that, now you asked me which was the audience I was writing for. Um, I mean, I have to say, I think I was just writing for myself in that time. I didn't know anything that I was saying, there wasn't going to be an audience or anything like that. And I don't think you do. What I did know is in the descriptions and you mentioned some of them that were, um, you know, prevailing at the time, I didn't recognize them. It's not that they were completely alien to me. It just didn't make sense. They were anomalous. There was something not quite right about them. They, 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 they created certain kinds of discomforts and certain things that didn't quite make sense. Um, certain predictions based around that and certain ways of viewing the world. So basically, I guess what it was, was a way of looking at the world which didn't allow me to recognize the world that I saw. So, and, and, and I had a kind of a, a, a intuition that it wasn't just me who didn't see it like that, but there were others who probably didn't see it like that for various reasons. And I guess part of it is recognition. And I guess all of us are here in to some extent in trying to make sense of a world that doesn't make sense if we look at through the lenses that we're supposed to look at it through. I guess that was the thing. And it's trying to, the difficult um, attempt to uh, 
arrive at a new way of looking at things, not knowing if, even if that's possible, but recognizing that the old way of looking at things just doesn't connect anymore. It's this thing that, you know, a disenchantment uh, of with a particular kind of language, uh, analytical tools, which do not, does not seem to work. And I think at that point, the problem was seen as only a simple one of perspective. But I think what became clear as we go further into this is that it actually speaks to a major, major shift uh, well, you know, in, in the way the world is structured. I mean, in a sense that with the Soviet collapse of the Soviet Union, you could actually say that there is an end of that kind of European project of uh, European modernization, an odd way as a project of the telos that begins in, in the French Revolution and sort of really starts um, coming to fray with the, um, you know, towards the end. And the Iranian Revolution in a way signals that. It starts imagining the possibility of different kinds of constructions. So I think those sorts of big shifts were beginning to happen, but there wasn't a, a kind of a, a blueprint or a guide or a way of being able to even map them out and even to recognize that this was happening. Yeah, uh, there, there is, um, it, it is important to bear in mind that though we are the same generation, we, we were in slightly different disciplinary lines, which I'll come back to, but that's part of the issue with the kind of the, the even bigger disconnect, because as you say, at least in terms of empirical and ethnography, there was a recognition of the work of minorities and so on within the social sciences, within the humanities, it was an even bigger uh, emptiness. And that notion of not recognizing the world as mediated through the academy in relation to the world outside its doors is kind of precisely one of the jolting, um, uh, jarring things that that is the beginning of an impetus towards uh, searching for for the the resources of critical Muslim studies. But um, to take it in, into account something that you said, I, I want to make very clear that um, we, we if we think in terms of, of um, the kinds of context that I'm starting from, um, it's no doubt the, the a fact that um, what we may call geographical and historical accidents of birth, uh, state power and choice and privilege do of course matter to those kinds of experiences that, that we've gone through. And if we think about contexts, uh, then of course, uh, Pakistan in the 70s is not Sudan in the 80s, is not Algeria in the 60s and uh, Iran in the 80s is not Libya in the 90s. But then again, neither is uh, Bradford, Essex in Britain. So in other words, there's, there's, there's particular um, uh, experiences that, that make for very um, incongruous kinds of unevenness and time zones in terms of, of intellectual production. But at the same time, for all that those political terrains are very uh, localized and transnationalized in very specific ways, the academic conversations were rarefied along particular kinds of ways. So in the 60s and 70s, we do have, I think, an interesting set of uh, shifts taking place. We have uh, sort of uh, critiques of the mythologies of imperialism. For example, Victor Kiernan's Lords of Humankind is really important coming in. Uh, we've got represent the critiques of representations of the other, the sort of the miseducation of the Filipino, the myth of the lazy native, Roberto Rotomar's Caliban. We've got a series of critiques of the structural relations of inequality and independence that are coming out of the 60s and 70s from Latin America. We've got, uh, you know, Walter Rodney, we've got Samir Amin, we've got Emmanuel Wallerstein coming in. 
And then we've got what we can call, and uh, most importantly, relating to Orientalism, to which uh, Edward Said's Orientalism, to which we will come in a moment, the sort of the critiques of, of, of the relation between power and, and knowledge. So from the Black Studies movement in, in the US and the Ethnic Studies movement on the one hand, to Chomsky and, and, and the Cold War kind of expertise, to Foucault uh, at the other end. But I'm here concerned with the sort of um, the specific lines of genealogy of critical Muslim studies drawn backwards to fundamental fear to get to get to the point of what I want to ask is what did you see as the main task of fundamental fear and what did you see it building on? So in, in a way for me, um, fundamental fear when it comes as a book uh, in, in this particular version, before the other multicolored versions come, come after. That particular book, to me, already spoke to a different kind of audience from those chapters. It intervened in a different kind of sets of debates. But to, to go back to my question, what did you see as the fundamental task of fundamental fear? And what did you see it building on? So looking back for a moment, then we'll look forward in a moment. But first looking back, what, what did you see it building on? I think the fundamental task for fundamental task for fundamental fear, or at least what I saw for it, was simply um, to answer a very uh, a question: How does one explain the presence or visibility or the hypervisibility of Muslims that was occur occurring at that time, without giving reductive accounts of it? So that was simply the only kind of initial. Now, the first thing when I did, when I sort of said I wanted to do this, is that there was an attempt to try and locate it within a case study. So the argument was, well, which, which area, which country are you going to look at? So if you're going to look at the phenomenon of, um, um, you know, Islamism or this kind of Muslim assertion of Muslim identity, where will you look at it? Will you look at it in, you know, in Lebanon? Will you look at it in Iran or whatever? So the first attempt was really this attempt to try and enclose it within the nation, uh, within the nation state. And my first kind of, my kind of feeling was this, that that really didn't explain why it was even then a transnational phenomenon. And most of the explanations for that phenomenon refused that transnationality or saw that transnationality in contingent terms. So for example, the argument was that 1967, had been a major effect in mobilizing Muslimness because of the um, defeat of the Seven Days War. But then how do you explain it in countries or in places where 1967 wasn't that traumatic an effect, that wasn't the border states, etc.? Um, how do you explain it with a kind of what was happening in Afghanistan? Why was it that there was groups calling themselves the Mujahideen resisting Russian, um, the Russian invasion? Um, why did they take on that guys rather than other guys? So once you started doing this together, what was the relationship between them being saying they're Mujahideen? What was the relationship between Afghanistan and Iran, um, for example? And once you remove away from this kind of a, a class analysis, which was simply didn't work for a variety of reasons, and you couldn't break it on any kind of reductive, you fell onto this kind of um, the category of religion, but the category of religion didn't really explain very much because that in itself was very, very problematic um, in terms of what it actually saw as being religion and the role of religion. So when you saw the category of religion, it was always a cover 
from what were real interests at work, etc. Whether there were conspiracies, this was all being done by the CIA or whoever, or this was the working out of capital, etc. So the real question, well, the only question that I set out to answer or try to answer was really, why is it that it is possible to talk about, or there are people who are willing to talk about Islam or assert the Muslimness, when 10, 15 years ago, they wouldn't have done so, so publicly. Uh, and there were elements of that, in not just in relation to these kind of large events, but also in terms of people's individual comportments and the way that people are willing to think about themselves. So what was happening on the ground, which made these um, things hyper-visible? Now, one argument would have been that, well, actually, they were always there. It's not that they became more visible, it's that our sight improved. We were able, better able to see what was there. So again, that required a certain kind of, well, what allowed us to see these things that, or what made those things appear more? So I think those were, that was the main issue there and how to address that. Um, and I guess my answer to that was how to relate this with the kind of critique of uh, modernity, which, you know, beginning to take on from some kind of post, uh, the French post-structuralist off um, began took the critique, and of course Laclau's work was completely into that. And that critique had two components: one was anti-essentialism, mm -hmm. and the other was anti uh, sort of a critique of universalism. And so, when, for example, Lyotard makes this very famous claim that you know um, it's the end of meta-narratives, um, a suspicion towards post-modernity is identified as suspicion towards meta-narrative. What was very curious, at least in my experience, was that the largest or the most powerful or the strongest meta-narrative was the one of Europe. And that was not really touched upon. And this is why when Foucault goes to Iran and comes up with these kinds of interventions, he is heavily criticized by his, how could you do this? You're dealing with something so primitive. What can you see in this that no, you know, it just doesn't exist. So you see this kind of moment, these flashes of intuition that start opening up a different kind of vista, which was almost unimaginable, because the, the most powerful meta-narrative was Europe, and that was not really being put together, uh, uh, being critiqued in a sense. But also that loosening up of the critique of Europe allowed other kinds of possibilities to emerge. So that was the kind of linkage of taking the debates around postmodernity and seeing them in relation to the emergence of Islamism. So that's that's really um, really helpful in terms of thinking of what you were building on. But let me ask you, how, how to be more specific, even how important was Orientalism and your critique of uh, Edward Said's Orientalism, or, or at least of a certain reading of it, to the question or even the scandal of thinking Islamism, because it's it was the the fact that you were thinking Islamism that shocked some people that that felt like an apologia for something that didn't have a place in in academia so how was that sort of interlocution with with um, with the orientalism rather than just with post socialism laclau and so on well orientalism i mean the book is, you know is fascinating because at that time there were still two well there still are i suppose two 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 kind of um, lines on this there are those who reject the critique for many many reasons but they reject it in total and then those who buy into it, but follow Olmos Said in his way of buying into it. 
I mean, what is interesting, and, and, and as we've pointed out by a number of people, is that, you know, within Orientalism, you do have one element, which is simply a question about um, denying the claims of knowledge neutrality. Because I think that had a major effect in uh, allowing people to say, yes, okay, we know that this knowledge that was constructed was uh, implicated in various ways with, uh, you know, interests of um, institutions, companies, private enterprise, imperialists, etc. So the idea that was one element of it. But I think the other element was that maybe that the Orient was a construction of Orientalism rather than a description of Orientalism. So in the former, you simply want to Orientalism is a bad description or inadequate description of the Orient. And the job of academics and others is to have a better description of a better Orientalism of the Orient, a more accurate description. And there's a faith that you can do this. And in fact, Said himself suggests that you could do this by some kind of reference to some sort of human, uh, you know, humanism or something like that. And there are others who thought, well, actually, yeah, what we need to do is we find that better way of being Orientalist, the good Orientalist. But within the text, and what I wanted to more exploit was this, that in fact, if you take seriously that the Orient is a construction of Orientalism, then there is no better Orientalism in a sense, because the, you know, because that depends on the idea of the Orient being better described, but the Orient itself doesn't describe itself through that. And I guess for me, then, you know, subsequently it became very clear that we talk about things like um, Islamic studies uh, or, but, you know, you can't imagine Islamic studies existing in, you know, uh, pre-colonial, pre-colonized Muslim societies or, or cultures or, or works, because it just wouldn't be Islamic studies. It just would be studies. Uh, and I think that's part of that. You know, it's like food. When you are in England or Europe, you have ethnic food, which is marked in a particular way. But the, your own food is never considered to be ethnic in, in that sense. So I think that was part of it that if you actually start focusing on the Orient as a construction of Orientalism, then the critique of Orientalism, the dissolution of Orientalism must mean the dissolution of the Orient as a category. And that then throws everything up in the air as well, because without the Orient, how can you have the West? Now, it is the case that um, the gap between Said's critique of Orientalism and his relationship to Islam and, and the question of the secular and worldliness creates particular kinds of um, uh, dead ends that, that that I found particularly useful to read through fundamental fear in the discussion of. But um, there's another element in your uh, in fundamental fear in all your work, I think, in particular, that is to do with a great deal of, of emphasis on on the work that language does. And um, I don't know if you would describe that just as part of the notion of fundamental fear as a sort of clearing of the ground or for the setting up of new uh, kinds of vocabularies. But in any case, whether it's from Wittgenstein or whether it's Borges, there's a sort of uh, a lot of um, uh, voc the vocabulary and, and the conceptual vocabulary is part and parcel of the epistemological critique, whether it be the terms Kemalism or Muslimistan or Islamicate or Islamism itself. So 
but in very different ways from the kinds of investments of Islamization of knowledge that is taking up, taking off also in the 80s. So tell me something about, for example, Kemalism or the Islamicate as integral to doing things with words in your writings. I think Kemalism is an interesting point because for me, it was an attempt to try and find a, a conceptual vocabulary to do the work that couldn't be done with the vocabulary that was existing. So if I was going to tell a story about the emergence of Islamism, which was transnational, it had to try and understand what could be a transnational way of thinking about, um, you know, particular types of formations. Now, Kemalism at that time, when it was studied, most of it was always through the national framework of what happened in Turkey. And what I found was interesting that what happened in Turkey was often they would make slight comments. Well, um, Reza Pahlavi in Iran did similar things or so-and-so did something else, but they would never say the linkages between these things. They wouldn't say, well, not necessarily a link in terms of, um, you know, uh, uh, there's a kind of a direct memo pass from Ankara to Tehran to do these things. But there is a question about the horizon of what is possible, what kind of things can be shaped in this. So Kemalism in a way, for me, was part of a kind of endeavor was to try and find concepts because the concepts didn't exist, which I could locate in a particular historical moment and a particular historical formation. And so Kemalism did two things. One, it only becomes possible with the abolition of the idea that there could be a distinct Muslim uh, presence, which was simply hardwired into um, um, the question of the caliphate. And I talked about that vaguely, but in general, the beginning of sort of political theory begins uh, in some ways with the end of the caliphate within Islam, because that raises the questions, how should Muslims live in a very deep way? Uh, previously, the question, how should Muslims should live, always ended up with the answer, they should live under a good caliph. I mean, that was it. I mean, you know, then you can work out little answers how to get there, but it was already answered on that. So in a way, the abolition is more than just killing off a particular caliph. It's actually killing the concept, which opens up a kind of a possibilities and impossibilities in a way. I think that that way of sort of talking about the linkages that Kemalism enabled and uh, the way that it already paves the way to the next book we will discuss in a moment. But before we get there, just two things. One is a part of the problem, I think, that the book encountered was the, the kind of um, cliched um, librarian's puzzlement as to where to shelve the book. I think to some extent that perhaps applied to the author as well. Where do we shelve this particular author in terms of disciplines? And that raises also the question of where critical Muslim studies will fit within disciplines, which we'll come back to later. But I, I think in the interest of time, I'll just point you to, to two things. One is the concern, which is implicit also in what you were just discussing a moment ago about um, the geopolitics of knowledge. And on the other, to, to, to connect the two things, the way in which you can think about the travels of your own work. So for example, how fundamental fear gets translated and how it circulates in, in different languages and in different contexts and, and how that over quite a long period of time enables finally other different kinds of readings and linkages to take place. Do you want to say something about that? Um, 
I don't know what to say about that really. In a sense is this, that I, I didn't realize, um, I realized there was a certain dissatisfaction about the way I was trying to describe things. And I was taken aback by the uh, response to the, the book, to be honest with you. Um, normally you have books which are kind of um, neglected and you know, and you kind of, um, you know, there's a comfort in this kind of neglect of readings. And, and, and then, so, you know, but when a number of times when people confronted me with the book when they read it, it was this thing about the apology. It was this thing that it was, it was, and often it would be uh, academics, you know, white academics would come to me and say, well, actually, you know, um, you have to remember the good um, in, in Western civilization or, or, or something like that. And, and that was really, really peculiar because I don't think I was doing anything. I mean, there was a whole story that you probably know very well that, um, the publication of the book was delayed for about six months because I, they, uh, one of the um, one of the uh, series editors wanted me to put in a, a, a clause, sort of a, a kind of um, saying that I denounce all kinds of experiments, which I thought was a ridiculous because I said to them, "Where, where, you know?" So there was that kind of question about the reception of that. But the fact is that the book connected up with lots of conversations which only became aware of that they were actually ongoing in this way subsequently. I mean, in a way, it's also my kind of um, way to connect up with these things because some of these things were going off, for example, in, in what we call black studies, but in a different frame. And some of them were this kind of, um, these sort of critiques in the level of, um, you know, you talk about the Islamization of knowledge, there was these attempts to try and say, well, we will have something authentic. And my suspicion always remained about the impossibility of that recovery of the authentic. So that meant that if you can't recover the past, which I don't think you could, then it's really about building the future. And I think that's where I would sort of position. I'm not sure that really addresses your question, but I don't know how else to? Yeah, I mean, I think we, we can pick up on that in different times, uh, because um, I, I think one of the questions that arises is also whether through the travels of the book, you finally found interlocutors that then enable you to reread your own work in different ways. But we, we, we'll leave that one aside. For well, I mean, to be honest with you, in that sense, you know, obviously, you know, um, uh, there are people that then you start working with. And one of the things that we've been constantly doing is basically finding um, interlocutors or but it was really a kind of a shift because there were in, interlocutors I found, you know, like yourselves and Nadia and, um, you know, Barner and people like that. They kind of were from a different, um, they themselves were kind of, um, I would say, I mean, I wouldn't say necessarily marginal, but certainly in from a different kind of positionality than that. So there was a kind of a, you know, there were, uh, there's a distinction between a certain kind of, um, third world intellectuals, which have been completely uh, absorbed, uh, not a problem, within that kind of existing um, networks, which were beholden to the kind of, you know, just before the end of the Cold War kind of thing. They were critical, they were sharp, they were intelligent, but they also existed around those things. And on some of these issues, for example, the idea of secularity, on the idea of what is a legitimate political subject, what is a legitimate future, there was a very deep consensus, which you know, which sort of unified the left or the right, um, the uh, avant-garde and the rear-garde in a sense there. So to find this, it wasn't so much finding onto like, I think it was trying to make a space 
for that kind of conversation to take place and to be groping towards it intuitively and uh, saying, okay, these things are possible. And then seeing that there are other markers that come in which make those conversations really difficult. And you can start picking up the clues that, you know, how people would relate on one or two key issues. And from that, you can work out, not a fully worked out position, but you can work out their position of what they're going to say on this. I think that the, the, the three things that you identified, so secularity, the notion of a legitimate political subject and what futures, um, helpfully identifies key issues within critical Muslim studies to work on. And it also brings me, and I'll, I'll make these last two questions short so that we keep, um, we move on to the second phase. Um, the, 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 the book that in a sense is the, uh, the follow-up to fundamental fear is Recalling the Caliphate. And there is uh, the, one of the interesting things about this is the way in which it's, it, it picks up, republishes and reweaves work of yours from the 2000s to the present, including, for example, Beyond, West, West, Beyond Westphalia, but it kind of not um, reinscribes it in a new path, which is the path between fundamental fear and, and, and the present moment. And I, I find that very interesting because I think it's, it's, um, it puts those same essays now to entirely different audiences in completely different conjunctures. And in a sense, what may have been clearing the ground is no longer so. And so um, the subtitle, Decolonization and World Order. And for example, one of the chapters that I always recommend to all of our, it's, it's set reading in my courses, which is names. Do you see it doing different work? Do you see it speaking to a new audience? Do you see it as a sort of matured take on where fundamental fear took you to. It's no longer you thinking through things. It's, it's almost like setting the ground for new things. I mean, that's really a very, very interesting question for me because I hadn't thought of it like the way you've put it in a way, but it's true that there was a certain regularity and I had to reweave them there. So some of these interventions occurred in time, but they really were part of a larger argument that wasn't so it was in my head, but it wasn't in the book in a way. But in doing that, I mean, the two things I was very conscious about in, in the writing of that book. Firstly, it was less beholden to a particular vocabulary. So in a way that the vocabulary of fundamental fear was far more in your face, uh, um, hardcore, you know, post-structurally uh, inflected language. Now, part of that is a certain kind of, um, you know, you're getting used to it in a way. And again, it appealed because of that, it had a certain kind of cachet value because it was a, a, allowing um, that language to be used to analyze things which normally weren't being used to, um, to be analyzed through that language. So one of the things in Recoin the Caliphate, it, 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 it tries to dispense with a lot of that. So for example, names, I may have talked about Islam as a master signifier, but then I start talking about it as a name and it brings, but that's not just a translation or a, or a, a transposition in that there's also a difference of what a name is compared to a signifier, et cetera, and it's locked into that. The other thing I could say to you is that it seems to me, and it's always very difficult, it's certainly um, to tell, there's a very different audience or, or a different response that I'm aware of to the book. Um, and that I think is quite a, um, interesting how this book is read by different people and they're seeing it something very different. And those who read uh, fundamental fear don't necessarily see the connection. So in a way, it's almost um, they exist in two different, two different authors in a way. And some 
So there, obviously for me, there's a continuity, but I suppose there is a development uh, of some of these things. And there's also growing assertiveness. You know, I say that it, what I would now call critical Muslim studies, it wasn't something that I was aware of, but I can see the need for it. Um, you know, is there something that I've been, that kept on coming back and back, you know, how can we talk about these things? And the recognition that it had to be a collective endeavor there could have just be something that was lost, uh, just you know, one singular intervention, etc. So, because we are at the minute where I had aimed to end the, this conversation, I'll just ask you the last question in a very, uh, I'll ask, or rather, I'll ask you the question, but I'll ask you for telegraphic answers, which is um, because because there will be plenty of time for us to discuss this over the, the course of the yeah. workshops. But the the question is bringing us to now to reorient, that is to say, the journal. Why a journal? How a journal? Why critical Muslim studies? Uh, why a journal? Because it seemed to me one of the challenges that we had all faced, a, a logistical challenge, academic challenge, was the work that was we were trying to do was always a battle to get it published uh, because of its interdisciplinarity, partly for the reasons that I've mentioned that it broke certain conventions or certain comfort zones. So it was it was an ongoing thing. That's the one response there. I remember um, one of the um, chapters, for example, talked, you know, which um, turns into democracy, it calling the caliphate, and um, sending, I was asked to send it to a journal and they came back and they said, they love the first part, which was the part of the critique, but they didn't like the second part, which was suggesting the possibility of there being an Islamic governance, uh, which would be, that was what they found really unsettling. And this was a kind of remote experience. So that was the first part of it. Uh, linked with that is to build a kind of, you know, to, to build a network of people who I think, I guess it's like, you know, you, you throw, it's like a message in a bottle, you send it out there and suddenly you have hundreds of these bottles coming back at you, that there may be others who may be uh, attuned or linked or thinking similar thoughts and maybe thinking together, having these conversations together to building up something maybe some um, useful way of progressing forward. So that's another read to have a journal. Why critical? Well, I started talking about Muslim studies as a way of trying to break that kind of theological focus. And you were involved in some of the groups and so was Nadia here that, you know, the online groups that just after, I think it was 7-7 um, that was set up. And part of it was to escape this kind of theological focus of being able to read uh, Muslimness only theologically. Um, so part of that was, well, let's focus on Muslims as a way of getting from, you know, rather than reading from Islam. And, and so uh, the critical aspect came into it, partly recognition that Muslim studies was part of the thing that they used to teach at evangelical schools, how to, uh, how to, you know, how to persuade Muslims to abandon Islam. So that was one element of it, which I thought was kind of ironic in a way. And this still goes on, and you can see this on YouTube, and, um, you know, you can follow that, you know, how... Mecca is in Petra and all of these kinds of various um, elements. And so the critical aspect were really was to problematize the question, two things. One, problematize what it means to be Muslim. So in a way it's really looking at Muslimness. But two, but Muslimness as a way, as an epistemological category, which means bringing in non-Muslimness there and say, well, what would the world look like if you took Muslimness as an epistemological category through which you could uh, re-relate history. So in a way, I guess the final way of saying the purpose of reorient must be to write an alternative history of the world. 
not in terms of history of Islam or Muslims, but it has to be in terms of history of the world. And that's why I think it had to be a journal rather than one book, because it could be a place for accumulating collective endeavor. Excellent. Well, I think that um, what would the world look like indeed is uh, what we'll be exploring as we come into the next few weeks. So thank you very much for that um, conversation. I, I, I trust and hope that um, everyone here found food for thought for um, the kinds of questions that uh, will then feed into the workshops we'll be having, as well as now the group work that we're going to turn into. This is another episode of In Conversation, brought to you by Network Reorient, the podcast arm of Critical Muslim Studies. Thank you for tuning in. Have a listen to our other episodes and please leave a like and a rating.